Spencer Balfour, the team of Nebraska, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Study, my guest on this edition of Fangraph Study, making his weekly Monday appearance. This weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does each week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Two trades. Two trades, both of which might compel you to scratch your head. Compel you to scratch your head. One of them involving the Arizona Diamondbacks. Dave Stewart's Arizona Diamondbacks. And David Stearns, a different David, a David Stearns, Milwaukee Brewers. A deal which saw the Diamondbacks trade Chase Anderson, a declining Aaron Hill, and a prospect to the Brewers for Gene Segura and two prospects, or one prospect or two prospects. The number of prospects is immaterial. The point is that the trade appears to be a slightly curious one for the Diamondbacks. Also, the Tampa Bay Rays, and another uh, NL West team, the Colorado Rockies, they engaged in a trade, which which also might lead you to uh, to have been to become confused. This one sends Corey Dickerson of the Colorado Rockies and a prospect to Tampa Bay Rays for Jake McGee, relief pitcher Jake McGee and another prospect. Dave Cameron discusses at some length those trades. There is also no shortage of idle chatter. And we find Dave Cameron also casting aspersions against the host of the program. I think when it comes to facts, this is a weakness of yours. Rollicking comments like that one and also that actual comment to follow. Uh, What is actually occurring right now, however, is not any sort of conversation with Dave Cameron, but rather it is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is Draft, the Draft app. Have I ever mentioned it before? (laughs) I think I have. If you have listened to this podcast once ever over the last, say, four months, you have heard me discuss the virtues of the Draft app. But allow me to enumerate them briefly, once again, here, because I'm contractually obligated to do so. Draft is an app, first of all. It is a daily fantasy sports game. You conduct snake drafts with either friends of yours or internet strangers. As long as you're part of the universe, the Draft universe, it doesn't matter. There's a very strong chance that you can also place wagers using American currency. What else would you like to know? Uh, Perhaps where to acquire such a thing? Well, if you have the iOS operating system on your mobile device, consult the App Store. Contrary-wise, if you have the Android operating system, you'll do well with Google Play or something like Google Play. This is where you can find the Draft app. And in so doing, when downloading it, uh, you will, it seems to me, for everything that I know, you will be benefiting Fangraphs Audio Somehow, this is what CEO and founder of Fangraphs, David Appleman, relays to me. He says, if people download it, if people are interested in the draft app, you are less likely to be fired, he said. So if you are someone who wants me to be fired, then I guess don't just ignore this. And if you also don't want me to be fired, then you could pr- still, honestly, you could still probably ignore it. Okay, the message is over. Let's move on to a conversation with Dave Cameron. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. What does it feature? That same managing editor, Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. Well, first of all, regarding that was the ruin regarding the D-backs, but actually, I was uh, looking over. Here's the thing, Dave. Last week, uh, we spoke at some length. I think certainly uh, longer length than we probably had planned on. Uh, we spoke at some length about the Rockies, right? Yeah, we did. Because uh, we said, uh, this seems to be a team. Well, of course, uh, on the one hand, they're faced with an unusual challenge, a singular challenge in the form of their ballpark. 
but they don't necessarily seem to have made a decision about whether they're ready to fail so that they might succeed or if they're willing, which would be not tanking per se, but building for the future, uh, or if they are trying to win now. Instead, they've really, they've really nailed the middle road. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't even know that I would say that, considering that they've attempted for the middle road and ended up in the bottom, you know, uh, unwittingly a few times. So they haven't even, like, perfected, you know, 500. <laughs> what is, wait, here's a, here's a question, just a, a semantic question. I, I believe mediocre, it has the word M-E-D-I right in it, yeah. right, which yeah. is the one we see from medium. Uh-huh. It's supposed. It's supposed to mean. It seems to me as though it's supposed to mean exactly average. But I do not use it like that myself. Do you? No, I think most people mean it like somewhere close to bad, but maybe a little bit better than bad. Right. Slightly. So, yes. Like, not to, uh, maybe like Gene Segura is mediocre. Right. Well, so. Yeah, I think I think Gene Segura might be mediocre. Yeah, I mean he's not good, but he's not terrible. Right. All right. He might be terrible. I don't know. The Rockies, though. Yeah, the Rockies. We're going to – well, we, we will – I was going to say we were going to touch upon Gene Segura. He doesn't need us to do that. <laughs> no, that, that's illegal, and no, yeah. even, even in Arizona. Yeah, even uh, – he would have to consent to it, and I don't – we don't – anyway, the uh, the Rockies – the Rockies are – they are attempting to be mysterious, maybe as a theory. What they've done is to trade what Jake McGee and – uh, a trade, sorry, they, they traded outfielder Corey Dickerson and a prospect, maybe Redlow, Pedlow? Padlow. Padlow, right. Padlow. Padlow to the Diamondbacks in exchange no, for... No, to the Rays. To the Rays, and they got, uh, what, Herman Marquez and then probably more notably uh, Jake McGee back. Much more notably, yeah. Yeah, much more notably. Uh, um, but he, he, as you point out, the problem is that, that uh, McGee is only, what, is two more controlled years, is that right? Yeah, he's uh, got two RBRs left. He's making five million this year. If he's any good uh, in 2016, he'll make like eight or nine or ten million next year because closers get paid a lot in arbitration. Right, especially relative. Uh, closers get paid a lot relative to what we, well, at least what we think we know about their value to their clubs. Yeah, I think like at most other positions, you can expect to get a huge premium uh, or a huge discount. Uh, relative to the market price uh, that you would have to pay that player in free agency, where you know, like you know, if you take, say, Bryce Harper to arbitration, uh, you know, he's going to make ten million dollars next year. He's probably worth fifty or sixty million dollars. So you're getting like some huge discount uh, off of what it would cost in in arbitration versus free agency. The best free agent closers get fourteen, fifteen million a year on like three or four year deals. And you end up having to pay them in arbitration like eleven or twelve million dollars. Like the the arbitration awards and the free agent awards for for closers are not that different, which is one of the reasons why we see, you know, some pretty good relievers get traded for not a lot in return, or um, you know, sometimes they even get non tendered when they're uh, we've gone through arbitration enough times because their arbitration salary starts to get pretty close to their market rate. And that becomes, uh, I guess, unattractive to teams who... Yeah, but if they can sign a free agent for, you know, less than you can pay a guy in arbitration, what's the point of uh, paying the arbitration award? Where it's pretty rare, uh, especially with position players, it happens sometimes with starting pitchers, uh, if they rack up, like, you know, a bunch of wins or something. But, um, you know, usually with position players, you're not going to get to a point where you're going to non-tender the guy because his arbitration awards are uh, too high. I mean, most likely if he's going to get his arbitration awards up that high, I mean, he's played pretty well and he's probably still undervalued. Right. Who's been who's been non-tendered recently? Pedro Alvarez? 
Pedro Alvarez was non-tendered, yeah. Okay. Uh, Chris Carter was also non-tendered. Uh, there was a bunch of first basemen this winter that were like, uh, uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago would have been looked at as good players because they had home runs, but they don't do anything else. And teams have started to realize like these one-dimensional sluggers are not all that good. Right. And, but that, um, but the, maybe the arbitration committees are still, uh, whoever's running these are still of the opinion that these players are good. Yeah, they're not. I mean, yeah, so they're not arbitration committees. They're, uh, basically judges who don't know anything about baseball who are, uh, selected to, uh, mediate a, a dispute between the team and the players association. And, uh, they basically pick which side presented their case better. But it's not necessarily on the merits of the, the baseball value. It's, uh, which one can convince non-baseball experts, uh, that their argument was more persuasive. If you're the one, if you're the, the person arguing for, well, and this would work in either case, right? If on the one hand you say this player has a lot of home runs and RBIs, but then the other person just says, well, actually, if you uh, run regressions uh, uh, to find the the run value of each particular baseball event, we find that this player, player X, is worth either significantly more or significantly less than his. Uh, you could make this a case, you know, maybe you're maybe you're arguing for the player to get more money, or you're the team arguing for him to get less. It, it does that really not have a greater hold over the the judge's imaginations than the, than the more traditional stats? If you use the term regression in arbitration, you've already lost. Is, there, is that true? I mean, it's not. That's like a, an oversimplification. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think to a large degree, the arguments put forth in arbitration are mostly based on comparisons. So what you're trying to do is show the arbitrators, this guy who's very similar to our player last year, played in X amount of games and hit X amount of times and had X amount of home runs and stolen bases and RBIs and kind of counting numbers, uh, which rule the day, uh, and say, this player, our player performed better than that player, and this, you know, that player got whatever, 4 million, 10 million, whatever the number is. So because of our player's superiority to that player, we should get 5 or 10 or 15% more. And you're essentially arguing for comps. And then the team will pick a different comp and say, well, actually, you were worse than this other player. And it's uh, essentially an argument over which team can or which side can argue their case in terms of playing time and uh, traditional numbers relative to what other recent arbitration players got paid. So, um, yeah, if you use the term regression or any kind of, like, uh, advanced numbers, the, the, the league and the Players Association have actually agreed that the only numbers that you can uh, cite – are the ones that are included in the annual Bill James Handbook, which is published by uh, Acta Sports every year. And there's, like, I think leverage indexes in there. So there have been a few examples of teams arguing that, like, middle relievers aren't that valuable because they pitched in low leverage situations. Uh, but that's about as advanced as they get. That, uh, that's still, I guess, I mean, we've discussed the arbitration process uh, previously, but I, I suppose, I guess I had not realized it was such a, because it almost seems, because you said that the judges don't know about baseball. Is it possible that they, that they know just enough about baseball to make, to make appeals to the advanced stats, uh, less important or less, uh, less rhetorically advantageous? I mean, I would assume that they probably, like, have heard of the game and, like, kind of understand, uh, that it's a sport. They have a but favorite it, team, maybe? Yeah, it's possible. Um, but I think in general, they're not really there to decide how good the player is. They really are there to decide who argued the case better. So, you know, both sides pick a number and have to, if you go to arbitration, you have to defend your number. And so essentially the judges aren't, they don't really care how good the player is or um, what his true value is. They're saying, look, you came in at 7 million or 12 million or whatever your number is. 
how well do you defend your position that your player is worth your number? And at the end of the day, they just have to pick one side. It's not like they can split it down the middle. They can't say, you know, 60% this, 40% that. It's like 7 million or 12 million. Uh, which side do we think did better? So they're really not evaluating the player. They're evaluating the quality of the arguments put in front of them. So the, the way that all of this applies to Jake McGee is um, one finds two possible courses. These are the, the two most likely outcomes for Jake McGee with the Rockies. Uh, he's been injured before, not out of the question that he remains or that he has problems with injury going forward. There's some combination of injury or ineffectiveness where he's not worth he's you know he's probably not putting up the same sorts of numbers uh, as as uh, Dickerson. That's one possibility. Yeah. The the other possibility is he's he's quite good uh, for a reliever, um, but this has this has the effect of backfiring for the Rockies because relievers who are good, um, you say a reliever who produces two wins in a season, is likely to be compensated at a much higher rate than a batter who's who's been worth two wins for a season. Yeah, I mean, those aren't the only two outcomes. I'm, I'm, saying, the, most, I'm saying in terms of probability, if we're going to make a, a pie chart. Yeah, I mean, I think the Rockies don't necessarily... So I, it's a complicated trade because we don't exactly know the Rockies' motivations, right? So, like... I think from an outsider's perspective, we look at the Rockies and say, this is not a very good baseball team. And even if Jake McGee pitches very well, they're probably not going to contend next year. And what do non-contenders do at the trade deadline? They trade relievers. <laughs> That's like basically every non-contender is unloading their bullpen on contenders at the bullpen uh, at the trade deadline because that's when teams most overpay for relief pitching. So there's, it seems like the most likely outcome for the Rockies, at least good outcome, because Jake McGee pitches really well for three months. And then they trade it and hopefully get more in return than they gave up for him, or at least get things that they like more in return than Corey Dickerson, who they seem to not be super fond of. Um, but then there's a, so then that brings up the question of Jake McGee's future trade value, right? Like, can you take a pitcher out of a pitcher friendly ballpark in Tampa Bay and put him in a hitter friendly ballpark in Colorado and expect his trade value to increase? Maybe, uh, there's some evidence as Jess Sullivan wrote that like fly, uh, fastball pitchers, uh, have lower impacts from Coors Field and perhaps uh, McGee, if he pitches well, will reestablish some trade value, having pitched well in a difficult hitter's environment. Uh, but I still think it's like any team who really wanted Jake McGee uh, could have had him this winter. The Rays have been shopping him aggressively all winter. There are plenty of teams, the Cubs and the Dodgers, who are contenders, who have been shopping for bullpen help. The Dodgers attempted to trade for a dominant left-handed reliever in Aroldis Chapman. Um, so we know that they had interest in this kind of pitcher, at least. Uh, the Cubs have been shopping for another reliever all winter. And there, there are plenty of teams out there who theoretically should have had interest in Jake McGee and weren't interested in outbidding the Rockies at this point in time. So now you're hoping that McGee pitches well, stays healthy, and in a few months these teams reevaluate their opinions of his uh, performance at the time when now they're going to get him for half a season or a year and a half instead of two years, I guess, uh, and be closer to the point where considering that he pitched well in the scenario where the Rockies are going to trade him, be close to an arbitration award that's going to push him up towards, say, $9 million next winter. I mean, that's the kind of price, like, Drew Storen got traded this winter. I think Drew Storen's not a terrible comp for Drake McGee in terms of, uh, you know, a very good setup man who might be a good closer, who has had some health issues and, um, you know, maybe not a, an elite reliever, but a very good one. And Drew Storen, one year with Drew Storen was just traded for Ben Revere, right? Like, if you go from Corey Dickerson to Ben Revere, that's worse. And uh, I think there's an open question of how much they'll be able to fetch for Jake McGee, even if he's pitching well, even if he's healthy, uh, and whether they'll be able to get more than Corey Dickerson and Kevin Padlow. My guess is the answer is going to be they will not. 
So in a sense, because there's, there's another move that preceded this, which uh, seemed to portend Dickerson's departure from Colorado, and that was the signing of Gerardo Parra, yeah? Right, yeah. And and for for how much did the, did the Rockies sign Parra? I think $28 million over three years. Hmm. Okay. So, so is a little, that, le- little less than $10 million a year. Is it essentially, at some level, did the Rockies essentially sign Jake McGee for three twenty eight? I mean, well, I'm trying, no, because I'm trying to so make he, a logical. Is, is there a syllogism in here somewhere? <laughs> I mean, so I like I kind of made the argument like, uh, you know, if you took the, what they paid Para and what they're paying McGee, you combine next year, that's over thirteen million dollars. And if we push McGee up towards like nine million in arbitration award in 2017, that's going to be like seventeen million dollars. So if you look at like basically over the next three years, they got five years of service between Para and McGee for about forty million dollars. So they signed the two of them for a combined five forty. Ish, okay. something yeah. like that. Dickerson, over the next uh, four years of team control, uh, assuming he played okay and went through arbitration a few times, uh, probably would have gotten in the neighborhood of fifteen or twenty million. So, you have could you have gotten uh, the difference between uh, what you think Dickerson and Paro will produce over the next few years? Which I I would prefer Dickerson. Maybe the Rockies prefer Paro, but. It's hard to see why they would prefer an aging 30-year-old guy who's more reliant on speed and defense uh, than a you know a decent hitter this 27 to 30 seasons. Um, but couldn't you take that 20 million dollars and sign a reliever and likely get more seasons than you would with the two years of Jake McGee and get a higher combined value for your 40 million dollars plus still have the younger outfielder? Like uh, to me, I guess that's the question: is like why sign par up for 28 million and then spend? Potentially 15 million on two seasons of Jake McGee when you could have just taken all of that money, given it to a reliever, and been better off. Yeah, that's funny. And, and now the the Rays have a bit of a, a busy outfield situation now, yeah. Uh, very crowded. I mean, their whole I think they have a, a just a roster logjam at the moment. They've got a lot of players everywhere. Right, which is not uh, that's not the worst case scenario. It's better than having no players. Yeah, right. But it's uh, problematic in that none of the players they have are like amazing. <laughs> right, you'd prefer Except for to maybe have... Kevin Kiermaier, but as an outfielder. So Kiermaier is their center fielder. Yeah, pretty pretty clearly. He's still a player today. And then uh, what in right field is it? Brandon Geyer out there? Steven Souza. Oh, they have Steven Souza. Yeah. Well, Geyer got a lot of plate appearances last year too, didn't he? Because Souza was hurt. Yeah. Ah, Steven Souza. Yeah. Come on, get better, Souza. And Desmond Jennings was also hurt. And Jennings projected as their regular left fielder before the Dickerson trade. Now I think there's a pretty good possibility they're going to trade Brandon Jennings or Desmond Jennings. Uh, Brandon Jennings, I think, is a bad point guard who used to play in the NBA. Yeah, but, might still be there. Oh really? Okay. I don't well, know. Yeah. Well, he. Yeah, I think he was. Uh, he was one of the first players. He played in Italy for a year. Yeah, I, I remember he, him as a guy who like. Scored 50 points and had no assists and took like 35 shots and still called himself a point guard. Yeah. yeah. He might have also, I think he played for the Milwaukee Bucks, so it's possible yeah. that he had to take all those shots. That's just true. <laughs> uh, so I don't think the Rays are going to trade him. I think they might trade Desmond Jennings, uh, who also only has two years of team control. Uh, so given kind of the Rays need to continually turn talent over, um, they might flip him for something and say, look, we're better off with four years of Dickerson than two years of, of Jennings. And if we think we can get something close to, um, you know, what we gave up to get Dickerson in, in terms of getting back for Jennings, we come out ahead. So look at teams who've been looking for outfield help, maybe weren't in the market for, you know, the Cespedes kind of prices, uh, the, the Clevelands of the world, um, the teams, you know, Baltimore, teams that are out, still out there kind of looking for another outfielder. 
Maybe uh, maybe the Rays flip Jennings to open up a spot for Dickerson. Otherwise, Dickerson probably goes to DH, uh, which is then a little bit complicating because they traded for Logan Morrison a few months ago, who looked like they're starting DH. They could move Morrison to first base, but then what do they do with James Loney? And then they just sign Steve Pierce. Like there's just there's too many players who are all not amazing and should be like sharing time. But adding Dickerson makes it a little bit of a log jam to where someone probably has to go away. They couldn't just give Loney away or release him or something because he's not very good. Uh, but I would think more likely they're going to trade Jennings for value. Okay. The uh, just a quick note: Brandon Jennings still uh, still in the NBA. Appears uh, he might be injured right now, uh, playing for the Detroit Pistons, and actually has been a roughly league average player over the course of his career. Okay. Well, maybe the Rays should trade him then. <laughs> I don't know if they're allowed to do that. They can are try. You, are there any players currently playing in other sports, uh, but whose whose rights are owned by a major league team? Uh, I think Russell Wilson is still technically a member of the Texas Rangers organization because they took him in the Rule 5 draft a couple years ago. Um, After he had been selected by the Rockies. Yes. Originally, I think, uh, yeah, he was a Rockies draft pick, and then the Rockies didn't protect him, so the Rangers used a Rule 5 pick on him. Um, Like a minor league Rule 5 pick, not a major league Rule 5 pick. Uh, But I think they did it just because they wanted him to come to camp and talk to their minor leaguers and give them advice. So it's kind of like almost like a PR thing. But I believe Russell Wilson is technically the property of the Texas Rangers. Mm, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, maybe no one else, though, we don't think. Yeah. I mean, every few years, like, when teams draft one of these football guys who has, like, some baseball talent, like, I think Jake Locker uh, was was one of these guys. I think the Angels drafted him as a pitcher when he was, like, a quarterback in the NFL. Um, so there's a, I think he, he, his rights might still be on. There's a few of these, like, uh, football player guys floating around, but uh, I can't I can't name any others. And uh, I believe, and then of course basketball. Mark Hendrickson at one point had been a 76er, hadn't he been? Yeah, he actually played in the NBA before he switched back to baseball. Um, He's a good. He was not fantastic in either league, but to play at the highest level of both is pretty exceptional. Yeah. Would you trade yeah. in one of those skills to be a little bit better in the other sport? For sure. Yeah. I, there's no question that there's a significantly higher return if you can <laughs> be like better than a scrub. Uh, the pay goes up pretty fast. Well, that's something too, right? When you, um, like, who was an example? There was the shortstop slash pitching pro- uh, prospect that the Red Sox at one point had drafted and then traded to the Padres, and he's been injured. Casey in- Kelly. Casey Kelly, yeah. And he, right, so so here you have here. There's something that's very appealing about a player who's able to do to both both pitch and play a position, um, you know, at a at a strong level. But but then you realize like. Having neither skill in great quantity is a bit is a bit yeah. uh, the, the sum of the parts does not equal no wait the parts do not equal the sum because you just really need yeah, them you'd to be do really one. good at one or the other yeah, yeah. I mean I think like uh, this is only tangentially related but I guess uh, Calvin Johnson is a good wide receiver in the NFL just retired uh, over the weekend or said he's going to retire uh, and he's like 30 right and he's so kind of like not in the prime of his career but still capable of playing and I think performed at a pretty decent level last year as far as I'm aware. Um, and the switcher, Jeff Samarja, who was a uh, potential first-round pick uh, in in the NFL and was, was a first-round pick and maybe a second-round pick, something like that, a high-ish draft, draft choice in both uh, options. He chose baseball over football. Jeff Samarja has had a middling career as a baseball player and just got $90 million to pitch into his mid-30s. And I think uh, you look at uh, Calvin Johnson, what I think was the number one overall pick or a, a very high draft choice and is one of the best receivers of his generation – and is retiring at 30 made far less money than Jeff Samarja. Uh, if we're talking about like trading in skills, maybe all these football players should try and trade in their skills for baseball because 
seems like baseball is the way to go if you're going to try and, like, you know, live. What I thought you were about to say is that Calvin Johnson is retiring from football in order to pursue baseball. That would be neat. I don't know if he has any baseball skills. All right. Well, I mean, you probably do something. He could probably start for the Phillies. <laughs> he's like he's like tall and strong and fast, isn't he? Yeah. So I don't know if he can hit, but maybe he could like be a you know a, an infielder who occasionally like body checks a base runner. Do you think in theory any any uh, sort of like top end wide receiver could could be a decent center fielder for a major league team? Yeah, probably. I mean, yeah. if you have the ball tracking skills to be like a good cornerback at the NFL or wide receiver at the NFL level, you can probably chase down a baseball. Yeah, although a lot of cornerbacks are cornerbacks because they don't have the catching part of the skill. Although I don't, I Yeah, wouldn't. but when you get to use a glove, things get significantly easier. <laughs> you don't have to wear bars in front of your face. You're right. Yeah. Also, also nice. Did you ever play football? Uh, not competitively. Yeah. Like backyard football. Yeah. Right. I played one year of Pop Warner, and I played some a little bit at tight end. And uh, I was amazed. I thought, Did oh, you used to weigh a lot more. No, no, no. I, in fact, I was disqualified from certain of our games because I was under the weight threshold. How did they put you at tight end? They just—it was Bob Warner. They just put you anywhere where you do the where I would be doing the least damage to our team. Okay. So they're like, yeah, tight end. Like he's probably gonna just kind of block a little bit, but he's not in the core part of the line anyway. No, but it was very difficult. Uh, this is a skill that perhaps I could have developed, you know, over the last 30 years, but I haven't tried. Yeah, I, I have to say, I can't see you as a tight end. And, you know, uh, that is not the position I would have guessed. Dude, I'm telling you, it was fourth grade. You have the physique of a punter. <laughs> Just so you know. Yeah, and I'm a coward. So, <laughs> so you also have the temperament of a punter. Maybe, yeah. I don't know if they all do, but um, I mean, if you are a coward, punter is probably the, yeah, one of the best the positions to play. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, I, we've uh, well, I think we have addressed that trade. Question marks, uh, yeah. ab- question marks abound for both clubs in different ways. Is is really the answer? Weird, weird trade. I think it will make sense for the Rays once they trade Jennings. But right. So what your point, like the argument from the from the Rays' point of view is. Uh, Yes. Okay, we'll do it. Just because the the valuation makes sense for them, not necessarily because they need the player. Right. I think they probably just ran it through their models and was like, ah, we're turning a $5 million asset into a $20 million asset or a couple of $20 million assets because I think they probably really like Pat Lowe based on his minor league numbers. So, like, a $5 million asset for a couple of $20 million assets, we don't know how we're going to use this, like, major league $20 million asset, but we should do it. (laughs) Right. And so... There has to be some threshold, like when a team like the Rays, you know, and it's interesting you say they run it through their models. Like the Rays are probably uh, as likely, if not more so, than every other team, you know, to have. um, It would seem from what we know about them to have like pretty, uh, a a pretty strong methodology for determining the, you know, the values of players like that, or the value of the player as an asset. there has to be a threshold, like if it was only like a million and a half surplus value for them, they're not going to to trade two players from their system for two other players, right? Right. There has to yeah. be a certain number at which it, it begins to make sense because otherwise, you know, anytime you can find any surplus, you're trading players. And it, I assume that uh, that would make it harder to retain other players once they saw how uh, willy-nilly you were. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily know that that's the main motivation, but I have talked to people in the game who have said, like, dealing with the Rays is challenging because they absolutely do value players on kind of the surplus value mindset, and they come up with, like, financial numbers and say, we think we're winning this trade by, you know, X million or whatever. And 
from what I have been told, they basically will not make neutral trades. They will only make trades that they come out ahead by a significant margin. So one of the problems of trading with a raise is like if they offer you a trade, you then have to go try and figure out why your valuations are maybe not matching theirs because if they're making an offer, that means they think they're screwing you. And so everyone's like <laughs> super wary of like, why do the Rays want to do this? What are we misevaluating in our own players or in the guy we think we're getting who might be pretty good? So if the Rays offer you a trade that you think is fair, they think it's really not fair in their favor. And um, so I think, you know, I've had people with teams tell me they prefer not to trade with the Rays just for the fear of the fact like they know that the Rays only make deals that they think they're coming out, you know, 30, 40, 50 million dollars in the black on. And so teams are like, you know, maybe I'm just going to trade with an organization that's willing to make a fair swap. What we haven't, uh, we didn't discuss this beforehand, so this is not entirely fair. Uh, what are some high profile trades or, or at least notable trades the Rays have made in recent years? Uh, I know you mentioned Souza already and Souza was one they acquired him from the Nationals. Yeah, that was the three-way Will Myers trade, uh, where I think you can argue, at least at this point, that they probably made a mistake uh, in flipping him. They would have been better off just making a one-for-one deal with San Diego because they could have had Trey Turner and uh, Joe Ross. And I think right now, nobody in baseball would take Steven Souza over that combination. And probably Joe, no one would take take Souza over just Trey Turner. Right. And, and it should be said, Joe Ross, I think somewhat surprisingly, was quite good last year. Yeah, the Nationals, they really, they liked Ross a lot. So I think that when they saw, I mean, they didn't want to trade Souza. That was another kind of example of like, well, we're just getting so much value that like we're trading a piece off our major league roster for prospects in a time when we're expecting and contend, but we're just overwhelmed with what we're being offered and we don't think we can pass this up. And I think uh, that's kind of what they looked at and said, look, we like Turner, we like Ross, we're getting them for a guy who, you know, doesn't probably isn't going to start for us or, you know, uh, at least we have a corners locked up with Jason Worth and Bryce Harper for a while. We can turn him into two pretty good assets. It doesn't fit our roster perfectly, but we should just do this anyway. Right. And the Rays also ended up in that trade uh, with the pitcher who has since moved on to the Seattle Mariners. Who, Nate Carnes. Yeah. Nate Carnes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I like how you like left the dead spot where the, I had to realize that you didn't know the guy's name and come up with it for <laughs> I, you. I, I did not recall the name. Yeah, that's a fact. I expected you to say the name Nate Carnes after like three seconds of silence. I was like, oh, I'm supposed to. Provide yeah. Now you're saying Nate Carnes. I could have gotten it. I could have looked it up. But you you tend to have a, something approaching an encyclopedic knowledge of transactions. So I decided to, I decided to, I decided to throw up that alley oop for you. Thanks. I appreciate yeah. that. Okay. Uh, you know, you do, one does get an appreciation for the, for the raise park factors when looking at, I mean, recently I was looking at Steven Souza's numbers and I think that, I mean, he had like a, he had like a 235 batting average maybe. Yeah. Something along those lines. 225, in fact. <clears throat> and yet still managed uh, with a slightly above average, uh, slightly above average batting line. Yeah, I mean, walks and hits for power. So. Right. So, and those are obviously two other things that are happening. But there's there are some numbers that can look pretty bad in their raw form uh, on that raised roster. But once they're adjusted, uh, they they look uh, well. They look better. Is the point? Yeah, it, it's a pitcher friendly park, which is uh, uh, in addition to how they handle their pitchers and how quickly they go to the bullpen. One of the reasons to be a little wary of trading for raised pitchers. Right. And what was another? Uh, did you have any other deals left up your head? We the San Diego. Uh, well, their biggest deal of the winter, I mean, not that it was a blockbuster earlier, was the, the Nate Carnes-Brad Miller swap. Um, oh, right. uh, it was like a six-player deal. Uh, let's see, what other trades have they made of note? 
in recent years. Well, they somehow uh, acquired Erasmo Ramirez from the Mariners. Yeah, they got him for uh, Mike Montgomery, which uh, looks like a pretty bad trade from the Mariners' perspective, but not surprising, though, <laughs> considering uh, Jack Zaretsik. Uh Not a great trader. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think the Rays, uh, they've done, well, they did the David Price trade a couple years ago. That was somewhat panned at the time, I think, uh, when they got Drew Smiley and Nick Franklin and uh, Willie Ademis, I believe. Or oh, Ademis. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so people really didn't like that trade for them at all. Uh, but I think Drew Smiley, before he got hurt anyway, looked like a pretty good pitcher and uh, kind of another example of, a, of the Rays maybe um, valuing quantity over quality, which is a kind of a hallmark of their deals. They often uh, go for multiple players over uh, kind of the one star player. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons they make a lot of like big package deals is because they're trying to get a lot of players in return. They also, uh, perhaps in a deal with... The Chicago Cubs, the, Mar- the Matt Garza deal, does that sound right? They were yeah, that was quite, Qu- that was quite a while ago. Yeah. they got Chris Archer in that deal. That yeah. worked out pretty well. That worked out too well. Yeah, yeah. worked out too. Well. All right, very good. Uh, the other deal at which we've hinted um, is the is the Diamondbacks deal with um, oh, who do they trade with? <laughs> who do they have now? Oh yes, they have uh, oh, the, with the Milwaukee Brewers because they yeah. have Gene Segura now. Yeah. Gene Segura. So the Milwaukee Brewers get Chase Anderson. Uh-huh. I I don't have it right in front of me. Isan Diaz. Oh, yeah, Isan Diaz, who is well acquitted, I think, by Chris Mitchell's Cato projection system. Yes, like Kevin Padlow, I think this is another example of a analytical team. Now the Brewers are. Now they've hired David Stearns away from the Astros and are heading much more in that direction. Uh, looking for low-level prospects who performed well in the minors and will do very well by these kind of statistical prospect rankings, um, but have not yet played in the high enough minors to be considered elite prospects. So both Padlo, who's traded in the Dickerson-McGee deal, and Diaz, who's traded in this deal, don't sound like you know elite top-end prospects, but the early returns based on their low-level minor numbers suggest that these guys could be steals in a couple of years. Yeah, and actually, it's a it's a different sort of player, but along the same lines, uh, as you're mentioning here, is I, uh, this offseason they've also acquired Ramon Flores, the outfielder, yeah. formerly of the uh-huh. Yankees, and then the Mariners, I think, after that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and also uh, Garen Cicchini. Uh-huh. And Reimer Liriano. And right, exactly, Reimer Liriano DFA'd. By, and whose whose projections are necessarily great, but who's got there's a lot of there's a lot about which to be excited except for his uh, contact rates. I the guess. Brewers are like stockpiling flawed players who might be a little less flawed than people think, uh, which is not a bad way to start building up a young base of talent when you need to rebuild. Like if you can get a whole bunch of these guys, ten or fifteen of these guys, there's a decent chance that like one of them is going to turn into like Ben Zobrist. Right. Well, what? Yeah, and that's really all you need, right? Is one of them to work out. Yeah, I mean, like, most likely, Brian Liriano is not going to be a good league, big leaguer. And most likely, Ramon Flores is nothing. And most likely, Isan Diaz is never going to turn into anything. But if you pick up a stockpile of these guys, you're going to hit on one or two, and then all of a sudden it's like, man, they ended up getting, like, a core all-star kind of player for nothing, or right. for very little in return. Right. Now, <clears throat> Dave Stewart, uh, Dave Stewart, of course, is, uh, well, he's enigmatic. Can we describe him as enigmatic? Is that fair? Um Sure. I don't know that that would be the word I would use. Okay. No, I, I know. I know some of the words you might use. I think you have used uh, some of them in print as well. Uh, but yeah. So on the one hand, so we have Segura and Wagner going um, from Arizona to Milwaukee, and then uh, Chase Anderson from Arizona from Milwaukee, no, right, from Milwaukee to Arizona. Thank you. Um, my my talent for just regurgitating the bare facts of a trade is not on display today. 
Yeah, uh, I think you, when it comes to facts, this is a, a weakness of yours. Yeah, I think that is probably true. Yeah. Going the other direction, Chase Anderson has mentioned, uh, Isan Diaz has also mentioned, and Aaron Hill, who I believe is about having roughly half of his $12 million covered. Yeah, basically Aaron Hill, half of Aaron Hill's contract is going to Milwaukee. I wouldn't be terribly shocked if the Brewers ended up just cutting him in spring training. Okay, right. So this is just what the money that the Diamondbacks made uh, were... The Diamondbacks for the salary dump. Right, okay. And they got Gene Segura in the process. Uh, yeah. Uh, whether you think he's enigmatic or something else, uh, Dave Stewart said something to the effect. This is, uh, I don't know, maybe to Nick Picoro or someone like Nick Picoro. No one's really like Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic. Uh, we're happy to have Segura. He's, we, we like that bat. They said something to the effect of liking his bat. Well, the context is that they traded away Ender Inciarte in the Shelby Miller trade, and Ender Inciarte was their leadoff hitter for most of last year, uh, or hit near the top of the order, was a high-average, high-contact speed guy. So I think the Diamondbacks looked at it and said, you know what, we could really use like a high-average, high-contact speed guy. And they couldn't afford one, and they couldn't find one that they liked. So they got a moderate-average contact speed guy in Gene Segura. So they look at kind of... Segura and Enciarte's skill sets and be like, yeah, these are vaguely reminiscent of each other, mm-hmm. except for the fact that Enciarte is much, much better. Right. He's, yeah, he's much better. And, uh, I, and, and I think, cause I think Segura has played, what, three full seasons now? Yeah. And he was, re- he was very good. Or his, two perform- his performance is right. We're quite good for like, yeah, I was gonna the say. First, the first two months of his career. The first two months. Yeah. Outstanding. And then he has been atrocious for the last two and a half years. What is the, uh, Oh, yes. The opposite of recency bias, I believe, is primacy bias. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is that because I still honestly, when I think of Gene Segura in my head, those two months, I think, have an uh, exercise and undue influence, positive influence on my the way I regard him. Yeah. I mean, I think like there was a, you know, cause Gene Segura was rated as a high high end prospect. He was traded for Zach Greinke. That's how the Brewers got him initially. Um, and then he got to the big leagues and hit pretty well for a couple of months. And so I think it's easy to kind of lock in your opinion at this point and be like, this was a good prospect with good tools who could hit, who got to the big leagues and hit. And this is who he is. And then the last couple of years have just been like a slump or, you know, some kind of, uh, lack of adjustment that Segura needs to make that he can still make, and you can be like, well, if he can just get back to that guy that he was supposed to be and that he was for a couple months. But I think at this point, like, if you look at just his core skills, it's difficult to see how Gene Segura could ever become a good big league player. Like, it's not impossible that he could entirely change his core skills, but he hits the ball on the ground 60% of the time. When you do that, you can't hit for power. It's basically impossible. <laughs> so it, it is. It's true. Yeah. Unless the unless the park were to change its dimensions uh, drastically, like put a wall twelve feet from the from the home plate or something. Right. And uh, which would be a weird game. It would be. Uh, yeah. What's the closest? Was it the Baker Bowl where the Phillies used to play? Yeah, it was like two fifty down the lines. Or yeah. Right. Or no, yeah. that than the Polo Grounds. I think. Right, yeah, that was that was the polo grounds. Right, were also uh, curiously shaped, not for polo, I guess, but yeah, for baseball. But for baseball, weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But since Segura like has basically no power potential because of how often he hits the ball on the ground because of his swing, uh, his only ability to succeed will be to get on base. But he doesn't ever walk, and he swings and everything. So if you're like a super aggressive contact hitter, who's actually not that great of a contact hitter, and you never draw walks to get on base, your entire value will be tied to your batting average. But his batting average is like 260. So a no power, no walk, 260 hitter is basically a bench player unless he's an elite defensive player. Segura is a better than average defensive player in that he can handle major league shortstop. 
but uh, not an elite defender, not Ned Dirt in Ciarte by any chance, and he's a much more worse hitter than in Ciarte. So Segura is the kind of player who is fast enough and kind of versatile enough to be on a major league roster, but if you're trying to win next year, you give him 600 at-bats, he's going to be one of the reasons you aren't winning. On average, balls on the ground have a higher BABIP than balls in the air, true? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Is it typical that that if, if you find a player who has an above-average BABIP profile, he will hit a bunch of balls on the ground? Yes. Okay. And then you have other players like, I don't know, like Ian Kinsler, who, I, who has an extreme fly ball. Yeah, and he has a ton of infield flies, so he runs low backups. Jose Batista is also like that. You know, a lot of Jose Batista's problems is that his hard hit balls go over the fence, and those aren't counted in Babbitt. But, yeah, that's true, but the team doesn't mind. Yeah, they're okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Jose Batista and Edwin Encarnacion, they really are, I mean, offensively, they're basically the same guy at this point, aren't they? Yeah, Toronto has perfected the right-handed high-contact, high-power, high-walk, three-true-outcome slugger that was pulled from the discard heap and turned into a very good player. Yeah, or kind of like two-and-a-half outcomes, because or true outcomes, because these those guys, right. as you mentioned, they yeah, don't they strike, don't strike out, right? out. Right, so two outcomes. Yeah, <laughs> right. the really walks, good and, walks and dingers are good outcomes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good job, guys, Yeah, for the not striking out, especially in this particular era. Uh, let's see. Mm, well, we've considered it. We've also, we, yeah, we considered briefly also the Brewers and the uh, what, what appears, at least what we can extract from their uh, this, their sort of strategy this offseason and what, what we assume will inform their uh, their moves in the forward, um, give, given the, the presence now of uh, David Stearns. David Stearns? Yeah, David Stearns. David Stearns. Not NBA Commissioner David Stearns. Uh-huh. David uh-huh. Stearns, the... Um, yeah, but I think I mentioned, like, the post I wrote today was basically crushing the Diamondbacks. Uh, but I did say on Twitter on Saturday when the trade was announced, and I'll probably write about it at some point, is I think very quietly the Brewers are having maybe the best offseason of any team in baseball, or one of the best anyway. Like, their ability to stockpile talent. Like, in this deal, they got rid of nothing that they're ever going to miss. Uh, and then in front of they got a guy who's going to step right into their starting rotation and Chase Anderson and might be a league average starting pitcher. And if they can turn him into a league average starting pitcher, they could probably trade him for a nice little bevy of prospects once teams realize that he's actually not that bad. Um, and a pretty interesting prospect in Ethan Diaz. Um, you know, and like Aaron Hill's a one-year albatross. Like they take six and a half million bucks and cut it off their salary in a year that doesn't matter anyway. So it's not like he's going to keep them from signing a free agent in the future. Um, you know, I think these kinds of deals are exactly the kinds of trades that can make the Brewers not necessarily contenders soon because the NL Central is still a beast, but it's going to give them a significant leg up uh, in terms of getting back into the race within a couple of years. Um, you know, I think the Brewers are headed for a couple of rough years, but I think as long as Stearns and his crew keep making moves like this, the valley will not be as deep as it could have been, and the, the climb will be shorter than it would have been otherwise. Okay. Okay. Is there anything we're uh, we're ignoring terribly? Uh, I don't think so. I think we're doing fine. Yeah. Two big trades. No, two trades of no last. Yeah, week. not big trades, but well, weird weird trades. I will say, like. I think in the last three weeks I've written three posts about clubs that I don't understand what they're doing. The San Diego Padres, the Colorado Rockies, and the Arizona Diamondbacks. I don't know what's in the water in the NL West, but the three weirdest teams in baseball all happen to play in that division. Do you think that, I mean, do you think that that is, is there any correlation between those two comments? Do you think there, there's the, there's the feeling that, well, of course, the, uh, the Dodgers are quite good. Um, 
but I don't know. Is it somehow in, uh, somehow related? They're they're trying to win. They're trying to. I mean, win I think the only thing that I can relate between like weird actions and the West Coast is that like marijuana is more legal out there. That's true. Well, it might explain certainly some of the Rockies moves. Yeah. No, I mean, like uh, you know, it's clearly a joke. Not insinuating that uh, any of the Rockies front office members were high when they made these trades, but I think you know, like trying to figure out why the three most perplexing organizations in baseball happen to be within like a few hundred miles of each other mm-hmm. uh, is uh, not something I have an answer for. Yeah. Besides jokes. Wait a second. Do they have, what are their fan bases like? Padres, Rockies, and Dynamax? I'd say not passionate. Well, yeah, not, at maybe, least not, not hugely passionate. Maybe you can, maybe you can do weirder things when no one's paying attention or fewer people are paying attention. It's possible. I don't know. All right, Dave, you have uh, you fulfilled your obligation. Thanks. All right. Uh, let's say, uh, let me say thank you to you. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. Carson Stooley, this has been Fangraphs Audio.